Amen. Thank you. Would you pray with me as we turn our attention to God's word? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we continue in our Advent study of angel visitations in those wonderful Christmas Advent texts. And today we get to look at the character of Joseph, of Joseph. Uh, Joy alluded to this last week, uh, but I did something that is generally not advisable, um, which is I wasn't paying close enough attention, and I scheduled Joy this year to preach on Mary and for me to preach on Joseph, which is exactly what the two of us did last year. Uh, Exact same texts, same people that we're focusing on. So as a practice, I should have swapped the two, right, so that those texts are, are fresh for each of us. Uh, I do not recycle sermons at all. Joy doesn't either. So the challenge then is to read this text and to, and to come up with a, with a new application, to hear something new in this text uh, that I worked with uh, very closely only a year ago. Um, I'm very happy to report that God's word is still living and active. Um, I am not who I was 12 months ago. Neither are you. Our church was not who we were 12 months ago. We're changing. And there are a few things more rewarding for me than the reassurance that as I grow and mature as a Christ follower, that God's word is becoming richer. It's expanding, and it's deepening, and it's blossoming. And that was my experience this week, diving back into Joseph. So would you stand with me for the reading of scripture this morning? We'll be doing some in-depth word studies from this text in Matthew to better understand Joseph and God's purposes for him. So I invite you to listen closely to the words that are spoken here, and I will remind you that this is God's word for us this morning. Anything that I say after this text is purely additive. This is the main event. God's word for us, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just as he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to him, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, a virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, And they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, had no marital relations with her until she had given birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. 
the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. It's important to note that what we know about the birth of Jesus comes from only two of our gospels. Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark omits the birth narrative completely, begins with Jesus' ministry. And the gospel of John, uh, he uses his prologue to tie Jesus to the creation of the world, but speaks nothing of Bethlehem and wise men or angel armies or mangers. So only Matthew and Luke record the birth of Jesus. And they do so in vastly different ways. We were in Luke last week because Luke tells us about the visitation of the angel to Mary. Matthew says nothing about that visitation to Mary. Instead, Matthew tells us the story of Joseph. Last year I showed art like this, uh, several pieces like this, to show sort of how Joseph is typically depicted and understood as we talk about him today. We know that he's there. We know that he was betrothed to Mary. We know that he takes Beth, Mary to Bethlehem with him. But in art, and often in our minds and hearts, he is sort of standing off to the side. You want to guess which one Joseph is? He's up in the top left corner up there. The only time that he really gets in the spotlight, the spotlight that Mary and Jesus and the shepherds and the wise men usually have, is when he is basically talked into marrying Mary, when he learns that she's pregnant. We might even get the impression that Joseph is sort of disposable in terms of the birth of Jesus. That he's not really a main player. But we do not get that impression at all from Matthew's gospel. For Matthew, Joseph is central. In fact, get ready for this, he is as important as Mary. Matthew wants us to know that without Joseph... Without Joseph's involvement, months before Jesus was born, that there would be no Christmas story. Joseph is crucially important, not only in connection with Jesus' birth, but even in connection with his conception. Matthew tucks in four important words and phrases that help us understand things about Joseph that maybe we tend to overlook and that run counter to the common perception of him. So let's dive into those four different sort of textual clues that we get. The first is this. Verse 18 says that Mary was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. She was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Uh, this would seem to tell us that Joseph was not part of Jesus' conception, which is true enough. He was not part of the conception of Jesus. Matthew has already acknowledged this. He begins his gospel, actually, by going through a genealogy that leads us to Jesus. He starts with Abraham. And he goes through David, and he goes through the exile, and he ends the genealogy in verse 16 saying, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That makes it pretty clear, doesn't it, that Jesus was born of Mary, but not of Joseph. Joseph did not beget him. He just happened to be Mary's husband. But Matthew explains how Joseph is still involved. The text tells us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Don't think of betrothal in the way that we think about engagement uh, today because betrothment was legal. You can break off an engagement with no legal ramifications here today in our world, but in the first century and in many places of the world today, it's still in place that betrothal was a binding legal pledge to marry somebody. 
So that means if you were going to break off a betrothal, you needed a divorce certificate to do so. And we see that in this story. In the Torah, in the Hebrew Scriptures, if a betrothed woman has relations with another man, that is not just fornication, that's adultery. Even though they're not married yet. And so here, Mary is called Joseph's wife, and he is called her husband. Even though they're not married yet, they call themselves that because they are legally so. So when she becomes pregnant, then that means that Joseph is now expecting a child in his family. This is how Joseph is involved in the conception. So Mary is told by Gabriel that she's going to bear a a child. And we typically hear that she keeps that secret. She keeps it secret in her heart. But then she tells Joseph, and Joseph has this sort of uh, uh, external sort of anguish about it, and he decides he's going to break off that betrothal to honor her. But that's not what Matthew tells us. He actually says that Mary was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. The word found here, this is the first word study we have, is a passive verb for you grammar snobs, uh, which means that it is summative of the wider experience of what is happening. In other words, Joseph and the other people who are around Mary in her life were not wondering who she conceived this child with. They knew. I think Matthew is saying that every person around her, it was found, it was known that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. People weren't wondering who's the father. That was the conclusion that people came to. Matthew doesn't necessarily tell us how people found that she was pregnant with the Holy Spirit, but the Gospel of Luke does. Because when Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth and tells her of her conception, she sings about it loudly. And at the end of of that narrative, Luke actually tells us that all of these things that were happening with Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were discussed all throughout the hill country of Judea. People knew it. She was already showing. People knew Mary's story, and it was accepted. They found, they accepted the fact that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So then how is Joseph involved? Well, let's remember the timing here. This is happening between betrothal and actual coming together in marriage. If all that mattered to God was that Jesus be conceived by a woman who was a virgin, he could have chosen a single, non-betrothed virgin woman. A woman who he want, a, a woman who wanted to stay unmarried and who he wanted to stay unmarried. But he didn't do that, did he? Instead, God chose a woman who was already betrothed. A woman who was legally a wife. A woman who wanted to be married. Now, once again, we usually hear the story of Joseph something like this. Joseph knew that the baby wasn't his child, and therefore Mary had to have been unfaithful with him. He knows that she deserves death as an adulteress by the law, uh, so he has to divorce her. But because he is such a good guy, he doesn't want to dishonor her or expose her to public disgrace. And so he plans to get what is called a Hillel divorce, which is a no-fault divorce. And, and that kind of divorce did not require any sort of public gathering, no accusations, no witnesses. It could be done secretly to try and preserve her honor. That's what we hear about Joseph. But again, that's not what Matthew says. Matthew says that she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph found this to be true as well. He doesn't think that she's been unfaithful. Surely, if he had questions, he could have gone to Zechariah and Elizabeth for confirmation. 
Surely, if this is what Mary was found to be, it's also what Joseph found her to be. Matthew says nothing about Joseph being suspicious or angry or hurt or feeling betrayed. He only tells us one thing about Joseph's state of mind. Joseph was afraid. He was afraid. And that's our second important phrase here. The angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What is Joseph afraid of? Afraid of what people will think? Afraid of taking a a woman as a wife who's already pregnant with a child that isn't his child, biologically? I don't think that's what he's fearful of. Because fear in Scripture is regularly associated with a recognition of God's holiness. When people come into contact with God and his work, they fear. So here's what I think. I think Joseph was aware that the Spirit had acted in Mary in such an unheard of way that he kind of views Mary now as off limits. Like she's too holy. She's too sanctified. She is set apart for this special task that he is just totally unworthy to be part of. He's afraid to interfere in the amazing things that God is doing in her life. He's afraid to take her as his wife because he doesn't want to mess things up. He's afraid of giving her a bill of divorce. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, by giving her a bill of divorce, he's going to set her free for that holy task. He's going to free her from shame so she can just go be with the Holy Spirit and do whatever the Spirit's going to do. In fact, all the disadvantages would go back to him if he files for this Hillel divorce. People would blame him, not her, for wrongdoing. I think he's so afraid of what God is doing that he feels like he needs to just step aside, step out of the picture, that he's not worthy to be part of it. But what does the angel say? Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the things begotten in her are from the Holy Spirit, the Holy One. And she'll bear a son, and you're going to name him Jesus, for he's going to save people from their sins. Two textual things here worth noting. And this is the third thing. Joseph is called son of David. Son of David. This is super, super important. Uh, The only other person who's called son of David in scripture is Jesus. Joseph is not the biological father, but he's certainly not out of the picture here. He is a son of David. There is no hint that Mary is from David's lineage. Only Joseph is. But we know from the Old Testament that the Messiah is going to come from David's lineage, David's line. And that's why it's so important that the baby be conceived while Mary is betrothed to Joseph. And that's why it's so important that Joseph does not go ahead and and divorce Mary. Because if he had done that, that baby would have been born outside of David's house and David's lineage. Joseph's faithful involvement is crucial for the fulfillment of God's promises throughout Scripture, crucial for the whole story of God's salvation of the world. It fits together when that Messiah is part of David's lineage, and that's not something Mary can offer. Only Joseph can offer. Then the angel tells Joseph that he has a job to do. You are to name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. There's a wordplay going on here. It was the job of the father to name the child. 
It was a way of, of, of welcoming that child into that home and into that family lineage. So Joseph is supposed to give him a special name, and that name is Jesus. By the way, Jesus was not a special name in the first century. It was a very common name. Uh, it's as common as, as, as any name we can think of here today. It's the Aramaic version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. So here the angel is saying, Jesus, Joshua, Yahweh saves, will save the people from their sins. See the wordplay there? But it's also an evocative name to Jewish people in that time because it brings to mind two very important Joshuas in the story of the Old Testament that have led to this Messiah. The first is Joshua, son of Nun, who is Moses' protege, who who leads the people finally out of 40 years of wilderness into the promised land, who, who crosses over the Jordan River into the land that was promised them. This new Joshua, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is also going to be a liberator. They would also think of a more obscure Joshua. Joshua, son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest in the temple after the return of God's people from exile. We actually, this is amazing how this all fits together. We preached on Joshua and we preached on Zechariah this summer, for those of you who were around talking about Zechariah. Um, he's the priest, if you remember, who received the clean clothes. And an angel said to him, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch. The branch. And I will remove iniquity in the land on that day. In one day. Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he will branch out and he will build Yahweh's temple. Yes, he will build Yahweh's temple. He will bear the glory and will sit and rule on his throne. So he will be a priest on the throne and the council of peace will be between them both. Zechariah tells us that Joshua the high priest actually wore a crown for one day, only one day. And then what he did is he took that crown off and he placed it in the temple as a memoriam, saying, one day there's going to be a coming new Joshua, Jesus. And he's going to come as a priest. And he's going to take away the iniquity, the sins of the people. So Jesus' conception means that the day described in Zechariah 14 is coming when sin and iniquity will be taken away, when the priest is going to put that crown back on and become a king, when Yahweh's temple will be built, when the kingdom will come in all its fullness. This is the mandate that Joseph had been given. Take Mary as your wife. Take the child as your own. Give him the name Jesus. And Joseph, you know what that name means, don't you? He receives that mandate, and he obeys. But the text tells us Joseph took Mary as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had given birth to a son. Why not? Matthew doesn't say it, but I think it's because she is, for now, the Spirit's workplace. And Joseph rightly does not interfere with that. The child is to be born of a virgin. The angel had said so. And Joseph keeps her a virgin until after the baby is born. And he tells us that he is faithful to name that child Jesus, a name full of meaning. So all that from this text. <laughs> For a guy who is always depicted in the shadows, who is always sort of sidelined, 
the spotlight falls on Joseph here in Matthew's gospel, just as it falls on Mary in Luke's gospel. Joseph sets aside his fear, proper as it is in connection with God's mysterious work, and he takes Mary in faith as his wife, and in faith he he accepts this son as his own and gives him the name Jesus. His son, God's son. Joseph is anything but disposable. I think he's absolutely essential to this story. So with all of that in mind, what does this angel visitation teach us? If we're just gaining a better understanding of Joseph and his story, that would be well enough. But because God's word is living and active and because the giver of this word is so gracious to us, we can also glean truths from this passage that apply to us, that speak to our lives here today. God chose an angel to speak to Joseph, and he speaks those truths to us as well in many different ways. Let me just name a few truths that I think come from this text, at least for me, and and I'll invite you to join me in them. The first is this. God takes those who feel sidelined and places them in a much greater story. If you're here today, and you think about God and his work in the world, and you feel insignificant or unimportant or maybe not usable by God, I want you to hear this today. God has so much more going on than you can imagine, and he actually wants to place you in the center of it. Do you feel like maybe you don't have a lot to contribute? That that in the economy of God and his kingdom, you just don't have that much to offer Hear this, God will take whatever you have. He doesn't look at you and see a small offering. He sees legacy, and he sees gifts, and he sees opportunities, and he sees avenues to do incredible things. Let me illustrate by telling you the story of a man named Dale Schroeder. Uh, Not a guy who ever got the spotlight. Dale was a simple man, humble man from Iowa. He worked as a carpenter in the same company for 67 years. He grew up very poor. He didn't have any wife or children, never got married, never had kids. A friend described him as a blue-collar, lunch-pail kind of guy. Doesn't he look like a blue-collar, lunch-pail kind of guy? Um, He went to work every day. He worked really hard. He was frugal, like lots of Iowans. He was a simple guy. He had two pairs of jeans, work jeans and church jeans. Dale died in 2005. His funeral was attended by several friends and a few co-workers and neighbors. Nothing fancy. It may seem like he was just a forgettable person, disposable in the larger story of the world. But what most people didn't know is that he had saved up a fortune over the years with no living descendants. Before he died, he went to his lawyer and he said, I never had the opportunity to go to college so maybe I could help a kid go to college. Well, not only did he help a kid go to college, he had enough money to send 33 kids to college with the money that he had saved up from his frugal lifestyle. Those kids became known as Dale's Kids, and they've gone on to be doctors and therapists and teachers and all sorts of important professions. They recently had a Dale's Kids reunion together, And one of them said, I'm so grateful for Dale, and since I can never pay it back, I guess I have to pay it forward, and I will. 
you see in this simple story how God has a much bigger story to tell through Dale Schroeder than what we might see on the surface. Probably more than he could have ever imagined. One that will span generations. In the same way, I find a a detailed reading of the story of Joseph the carpenter, much like Dale the carpenter, it makes me like him even more. Not because Joseph is so great, but because he's kind of who I want to be in a lot of ways. He's nothing super spectacular. He works hard. He's humble. He's faithful. He's kind of in the shadows, but God uses him to do incredible things that he couldn't do on his own. You can't tell the story of God's salvation work in the world through Jesus without Joseph. And and, and I want that. I I, want to work hard. I want to make right decisions. I want to seek righteousness, be faithful. Whatever meager average gifts I have to bring, I want to put them on the table in my life and see what God does with them. Maybe you can't tell the story of God's kingdom work in Hinsdale without me and you and Hinsdale Covenant Church. What more could we ask for, really? That God would place us in a much larger story that he is writing that we could never imagine and we could never pay for. Second thing I think that Joseph's life tells us is that God addresses our fears. Whatever fears we have, God knows them. This angelic messenger from God was fully aware of Joseph's fears. He he knew that he was fearful of interfering with the work of God. That He was humbled by God's presence that he didn't feel worthy to enter into this arrangement as the earthly father of the Messiah. The messenger of God goes straight to that place of fear and he addresses it and he allays that fear within Joseph. What is it that keeps you from accepting your role in God's larger story for your life? Are you fearful that you won't be able to do it well? Are you fearful of what the cost might be for you? Are you fearful about where God might lead and what he might call you to do? My encouragement this morning right here, right now, is to let God graciously come to you with that similar message that your fears are understood. That you are understood. Let him allay those fears. Let him paint a picture of your future that you do not need to be fearful of. And the third thing, and this is dovetailing off of last week, is God commands us to participate. To participate. Notice that Joseph didn't just receive these words from the angel. Oh, that's a nice word for me. That's great. No, he received them as a mandate for his life. The angel said, take Mary as your wife. And he did. The angel said, Name him Jesus. And he did. So when God sends a message to you through an angel, through the Holy Spirit, through another person, through his word, one way to test that word and make sure that it is from God is to say, am I being invited to participate in God's purposes here? Because that's how God works. He invites us to participate in his purposes for the world. To bring whatever we have, to lay it before him and to say, here's what I've got. I'm in. What would you have me do, God? How can you use me in your greater story? Friends, Matthew centers the story of Joseph. 
It's an unlikely person to put at the center of the story of the birth of Jesus. But that's what God does. He takes normal, flawed, unremarkable people and places them in the center of a story that is much larger than their own. And if you're here today and you've never really felt invited to say yes to God's larger story for your life, let me encourage you to consider that today. If you're someone who knows that God has a larger story for your life, but you feel inadequate, unworthy, or too fearful to step into it, let me encourage you to let God come to you today and speak to your heart. Let him tell you what he sees in you. Let him allay your fears. And if you're someone here today who who knows Jesus and loves Jesus, but you know that you're not really participating in God's purposes for the world, that you are mostly living for yourself and writing your own story, let me encourage you to lay your life before God and ask him to reveal to you how he wants you to participate in his greater purposes, to get beyond yourself and to step into his greater story for you and for the world around you. And in doing so, we walk in the footsteps of Joseph, a man who was placed in the center of God's greater story. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this story of Joseph. For a man who has so seemingly little to bring to the birth of a Savior. And yet you use him. Would you find us to to be much like him? Humble. Willing to, to hear your voice in our lives and the commands that you give us and say, yes, Lord. in a healthy fear of your presence and and your work in the world, an appropriate humility to say, what can I bring? But Lord, would you give us the courage like Joseph to bring what we have to you? Would you place us in a larger story of your purposes for the world than we could ever write for ourselves? Would you teach us what it means to participate in your work in the world? And Lord, we thank you that you are indeed at work in the world, that there are millions of stories like Dale Schroeder's and others of of ways in which you've taken little things and, and, and done incredibly more than we could imagine or ask. We pray particularly for the places in our world that need your hope the most, those places that are war torn. those places that don't know the hope of your gospel. Lord, would you call us to pray for these places that your purposes would be made known. And if there are ways that you can use us, we commit ourselves to you. And Lord, we thank you 
we're humbled that you give us an opportunity to take part in your story, the story of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, God with us, who first taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'll have you stand for our closing hymn. It's number 170. This is a hymn that is devoted to Joseph. And I'll have you, as we sing this together, take note of these beautiful words, the hands that first held Mary's child, 170.